You're listening to the Script Lab Podcast. I'm Shani Edwards. Today I chat with Australian writer-director Jennifer Kent about her gripping new film, The Nightingale. If you're a fan of horror, you probably know Jennifer's last film, The Babadook. The Nightingale is set in 1825. Claire, played by Ashleen Franchosi, is a young Irish female convict who chases a British officer, played by Sam Claflin, through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness, bent on revenge for a terrible act of violence he committed against her family. On the way, she enlists the services of an Aboriginal tracker named Billy, played by Bakley Ganimbar, who is also marked by trauma from his own violent-filled past. I speak to Jennifer about revenge, writing a monstrous villain, and what she learned from filmmaker Lars von Trier. Take a listen. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Shani. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for speaking with me. Um, I'm here to talk to you about your amazing new film, The Nightingale. Ah, thank you. Um, my listeners probably know your last film, The Babadook, mm-hmm. and that won like 50-something awards and just really established you as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a shock that that film uh, did, did the business that it did. Eventually, it took, a, it took a while, I think, you know, when it was initially released. Not a lot of people saw it, but since then, it's kind of gained a bit of a following. Absolutely. Yeah. And now your latest film, The Nightingale, it won the special jury prize at Venice Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And one of and your actors, ba- is it Bakley? Bakley, yeah, Ganamba. He won Best Young Actor, right? Yeah, 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 Best Emerging Actor. And, you know, it's very rare in Venice to win two awards. Uh, they normally uh, distribute one per film. Mm. And so, yeah, it was a real shock to us that we... And it's such a wonderful thing for Bakley because it was his first ever role and he's he's got a huge role in the nightingale so and and is such a special actor um so yeah. it's incredible for yeah him. well well deserved yeah the nightingale takes place in 1825 mm-hmm. tasmania yes maybe you can set the scene for my listeners because we're not taught about Tasmanian well, well we're not taught about it either actually <laughs> i mean i did you know f- all up about five years research on the film uh, over a period on and off but um but that was not something that i learned about in in school and um i think i think it's important for people to understand that this film is historically accurate and that it's the story of my country's history and so I was drawn to tell it, not just for a, a, you know for that reason, but I think it's also a universal story. Uh, colonialism, you know, happened. Many many countries have been colonized, and a lot of damage has been done in the process. And I, I wanted to talk about not just colonization, but also the mind that you know the mind that developed colonialism. Uh, is the same mind that's driving violence in the world now, in the modern era. And I think it's relevant to today's society. So, It's, it's very relevant. I mean, we're seeing in America just these awful divisions with immigrants. And um, anyways, that's... it's. I mean, yeah, there's lots of parallels that can be drawn, you know, and I think that... I think it's... Uh, that's what makes it a universal story. And I think that perhaps what's shaking people up, some people, um, 
when they see it, you know, it's really having a very uh, strong effect on people. So, Let's talk a little bit about your protagonist, Ashleen Franchiosi. Franchosi. Franchosi. The first name is perfect, though, Ashling. Uh, <laughs> she gets called some weird names like Arsling and <laughs> Aisling. For my listeners, Which, uh, it's spelled A S. A-I-S-L-I-N-G. Okay. So it's an Irish name. Yeah. And the Gaelic names never uh, sound how they look. So, yeah. But, um, She's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you can't hold her down. Yeah. She just goes and goes and goes. One of the things I think beginning writers have a problem with is understanding how to really torture their protagonist. Uh, they want to be nice to their protagonist. And mm. you did a great job <laughs> of putting her through it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as, as I've mentioned, it is our history. And it is, those women were tough. And, you know, they were brought over on boats, on ships. You know, most of them had committed a crime no worse than stealing a loaf of bread to survive so they could eat, so that they could continue. It was a really hard time for... Uh, the the poor classes in Britain and poverty was seen as a moral weakness even though they had absolutely no no other option there was very lack a little compassion uh, set aside for these people if any and so their path was almost like well you deserve this Um, and so they they really uh, survived a lot of abuse Um, the women sent to Tasmania they were sent there, uh, Tasmania itself was a, a place used to house the worst of criminals, male criminals, but the women were sent there to even the gender balance so that they could procreate and provide you know, a future for this um, state. But the, the, so the women's crimes were far mm. uh, less severe than the men around them. So, you know, any, and, and the ratio was one woman to eight or nine men and I think when, you know, this is a world that's lost its respect for the feminine. And, you know, it's, uh, it's an example of what can happen when, when that plays out. So I love a good revenge story, <laughs> and especially when it's a female. Yeah. So what did you know you had to do to her to send her on this bloodbath revenge odyssey? Well, it's interesting because I think that the film is, you know, it has revenge in it, but I wouldn't call it a revenge film. Okay. I think it it deals, you know, for people looking for a really cathartic experience with her, um, I think they'll be disappointed because for me, I, you know, I wanted to make a film about the fallout of violence mm. and of how uh, the impact, the genuine impact, I don't mean in a in a sort of movie, you know, movie violence way, but in a real way. And I think that um, whilst revenge is an interesting concept and can be edifying to a certain extent, I think the, in the playing out of it, there's, there's inevitably going to be a hollowness. And so, yes, of course, in this situation, as, as is, was the case with many women, they lost partners, they lost children, um, they were defiled, they were abused, but uh, you know, in Claire's case, yes, she sets off um, with this rage, but throughout the film it transforms into something very, very different. That's correct. I, um, 
realize now that shift there's a shift in her towards the end yeah and she yeah. she kind of does come to this conclusion that it's so senseless and it's not going to you know bring anybody back from the dead yeah and I think it's only in the playing out of that that um without giving away yeah. the film to people who haven't seen it but it's in the playing out of that that she discovers something about herself that she she didn't know mm-hmm. um and that that's actually what interests me the most about this story is well what happens when you you know the world the world that I witnessed when I was writing the story was one that is so quick to violence and revenge but what happens if you have the opportunity to play that out where are you left at the end of that Um, and that's what intrigued me yes let's talk about your villain Sam Clay Flynn plays a British officer yeah and um he was so good <laughs> so good i mean i've seen him in a bunch of stuff yeah but he really got this character yeah um how did you write him to be a monster but not so monstrous that we didn't believe him well i think uh, we always together sam and i saw uh hawkins behavior as monstrous but he was human so it was all about focusing on Hawkins' damage rather than his evil, uh, his capacity for evil. And so um, that allowed us into his character and to see him as human and terribly, terribly flawed and incredibly damaged, but still human. And so um, every action that he, that he carried out had a motivation. Whether we agreed with that, you know, as human beings or not, it, it's sort of irrelevant. The fact is, oh, he did this abominable thing. I can see why. And uh, that kept him as a human being. And I think the, the beautiful thing about Sam is that he's a very warm person. And that's why he's played, you know, a lot of matinee idols and a lot of... Uh, he's very handsome. And these were all the qualities that I actually wanted for Hawkins, as mm. someone who... Um, you know, on the outside, you'd think, well, why would you ever? You're, you're my knight in shining armour. You know, you're the, the hero. But it's the very point is that um, damage comes in all shapes and sizes. And, you know, often in film, the villain, the so-called villain, you know, especially when it involves sexual violence, is depicted as someone ugly and horrible and, oh, you can pick them a mile away. But um, I wanted Hawkins to be that that handsome man, you know, that you don't suspect. Well, you knocked it out of the park, writing, <laughs> casting, and then his performance. Yeah, well, I can't lay claim to that. I mean, he, <laughs> he put himself, you know, it was a role that was very hard to cast because a lot of men don't want, they want to be playing the hero. But I think Sam really understood the point of the film and he believed in it and, and he very bravely set off on that, on that on that uh, characterization it's commendable let's talk a little bit about the character of billy and his relationship with claire obviously it's very difficult in the beginning um but they're both so desperate and they've both lost so much how do you sort of tiptoe those two such different characters together into common ground I think it was very much on Billy's part of uh, eliciting the help of uh, Tasmanian Aboriginal elders and in particular 
Uncle Jim Everett, who was our consultant, who was my collaborator from treatment stage right through to final cut. And so I can't, I'm, you know, as a, as a white woman going into this story, I needed, it's a shared story. I mean, I can, I can talk, speak to the, the female character, but I needed that insight and also the permission to tell the story. You know, it's not something I can just go and decide to tell. So we we did what was, you know, what what we was really necessary to us, which was collaborate. And so Jim gave me a lot of insight into Aboriginal culture, but also into Billy's character and who he would be, and you know, working together to authenticate all the historical details, but also talking with me about who this person would be and what his losses were and how that would affect him and you know how it would affect him as an aboriginal young aboriginal man so i'm incredibly indebted to jim for his involvement and the film would not have been made without his help i wouldn't have attempted it so, so you mentioned starting with the treatment phase what is your writing process like I think, you know, like all writers, when I'm starting a new project, I think, how the hell am I going to do this? I can't, I can't write. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it comes with a, a fair dose of self-doubt. Um, but then you push through. And, you know, I, I try and structure my days. So I give myself a certain amount of hours that I have to clock on and clock off for. Um, I do a lot of procrastinating. I build that into my days. And then, you know, eventually you just have to keep at it. I give my, set myself goals of when to finish a rough first draft and when to polish and second draft, etc. Because otherwise you just, no one's there to crack the whip. Um, it's very easy to skive off and, and not do your work. So I try and be my own taskmaster. You know, that seems to work for me. Now you started as an actress, is mm -hmm. that correct? Yeah. I have this theory that when you study acting, especially if you study theater, it kind of gives you tools as a screenwriter. Is that, yeah. do you feel like that? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, before I became a, a professional, you know, working, uh, writing in professional capacity, I was uh, a professional people watcher and, you know, embodied, had to inhabit the lives of other people, the skin of other people so that I could portray them uh, compassionately and realistically. So already I was a storyteller, um, just, a, just a different piece of the puzzle. But even before studying acting and becoming an actor, you know, as a kid I wrote, directed plays and acted in them. So it was in my, in my DNA from a very early age. But it wasn't until I got quite frustrated with acting, and that happened very quickly, um, that I, I knew that I really wanted to tell stories from a from a directing perspective, from a writing directing perspective. Mm, that's great. The singing in this film is just gorgeous. Mm. So you have um, Claire is singing in Gaelic, mm -hmm. and Billy is singing in his native Aboriginal language. Yeah, it, it's not. Yes, Billy's. Yes, it is Billy's native language. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that and why you wanted to include those languages in the film and do people still speak those languages? Yeah, I think um, you know, language is a, is a... To speak your own language is to embrace an identity and that's why colonisers often removed 
the permission for people to speak their own language because it uh, destabilised them and it took away their identity and their connection to land and culture. And so uh, in the case of Billy's character, he's speaking something called Paluakani, yeah. which is a, um, the Tasmanians um, speak that now. So modern-day Tasmanian Aboriginal people speak Paluakani and it is a reconstructed language of, of the remnants of all the languages. It was about 11 nations that existed in Tasmania when it was Van Diemen's Land in that period. So it's a living, breathing language that modern-day Aboriginal, Tasmanian Aboriginal people have reclaimed. And uh, um, it's, it's continuing to grow. And I think uh, similarly, um, Claire speaks Irish. And I really wanted that in the film. And in fact, her husband, who play, her, the, the actor who plays her husband, is Australian. But he uh, he has managed to. We had a uh, a, dialect, a dialogue coach, Irish dialect coach, and uh, he he does a perfect job apparently. So it was important for me to include those languages and subtitle what they're saying, because it's 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 part of who they are. It's a very important piece of who they are. And, but kids don't learn Gaelic or they do. Irish. They do. Yeah, Irish kids do. A lot of them aren't fluent, but um, Ashling was, and her mum is a, you know, was a, an Irish language teacher. Yeah. So, a lot of, for a lot of young, apparently for a lot of young Irish people, it's not cool to speak uh, Gaelic, but um, you know. For Ashling, it was part of her existence, to, and she's she's she also speaks Italian and and uh, French, and I think maybe Spanish. So yeah, she's multilingual. <laughs> Smarty pants. Smarty pants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I read that you uh, worked with Lars von Trier. Mm -hmm. He's made a couple of my favorite films, and then oh, yeah. a couple of my Which least ones? favorite. Films. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I feel the same way. Breaking the waves. Mm -hmm. And um, the one with Bjork. Dancer in the Dark. Dancer in the Dark. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just die every time I see Yeah. That yeah. They were the films that drew me in as well, particularly Dancer in the Dark. So did you, uh, did you work with Bjork? No. I actually saw that film and I thought, oh, you know, I wanted to be a director at the time. And I thought I was giving up acting and I thought I, I want to go and work with this man because I want to understand how he can get such a complete vision on the screen. And so I wrote to him and initially was rejected and by his assistant and then he read my email and said, yes, you can come for one day um, on set. So from Australia to Denmark and then to Sweden, I went for one day and his producer warmed to me and they let me stay for the whole shoot. And I learnt more in that, however many, I think it was 10 weeks, I learnt more in that time than I would have at any film school. And you're talking so, about Dogma. Dogville. Dogville. Yeah, Dogville. Yeah. Well, it was Dogma that they created, but Dogville, yeah, is the name of the film. Yeah. So can you share anything you learned that surprised you maybe? Um, I think I needed to see Lars's stubbornness because as a woman and a rather polite woman at the time, I... I needed to understand that in order to get a vision, a singular vision to the screen, I was going to have to maybe not be liked by certain people along the way and to remain uh, dedicated to the, to the idea. So he taught me that just from watching him. 
Uh, and I think the other big thing was um, seeing a person be, seeing a, a great director, you know, whether you, whatever you think of him as a person, he, you know, his skill as a director is incredible. Seeing that, but also coupled with a real person who was struggling and sometimes felt insecure and, um, you know, didn't always get what he wanted and had to go back and do things here and there. So it helped me to understand, ah, oh, everyone struggles uh, and that's part of it and to not be scared of that. So, yeah, I felt permission to be a filmmaker after that, that I maybe have the courage to do it. Well, that's great. Mm, it was worthwhile. Yeah, good for you for writing that letter. Yeah. I think so many of us think, oh, I should do that, but we never yeah. actually do it. I've got really strong instincts, and if I don't do things that are, you know, that was screaming out at me, go and do this now. And I just, if I ignore those things, I, I, I will pay. I pay for that. So, yeah, try and listen to my instincts. Do you know what you're doing next? Um, yeah, I've got a film on the boil that we're still uh, financing, Alice and Frida Forever. It's based on a, a love story between two girls that was a real real story in Memphis in the 1890s. So that's a sort of beautiful and heartbreaking love story. And then I've got a sci-fi series that I'm here at the moment, have been pitching, and we've had um, a, couple, you know, a number of offers on that. So... I'm going to get to work uh, developing those scripts, and I'll be I'll be writing the scripts and directing all those episodes myself. Wow! Yeah, congratulations. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's thank you. It's based on a amazing uh, writer, James Tiptree Jr., who um, you know, burst onto the sci-fi scene in the late '60s and wrote for ten years and just won all these awards for the, his short stories. And then after, no one ever knew who he was. He was very secretive. And then after 10 years, they discovered he was a woman. Oh, and so it's uh, her life, her, her own life was extraordinary. And so I'm blending her life with her stories to tell her her overall story. Well, I can't wait to see you tackle sci-fi. Thank you. Thanks. I'm really excited. I love sci-fi. Absolutely love it. So... Well, I wish you the best of luck with Thank you. The Nightingale. It's fantastic. And Thank you, Shani. I hope everybody goes to see it. And um, maybe I'll get to talk to you when you do your sci-fi series. the next thing, yeah, or the, or the romance. You know. Or the romance, See yes. which happens first. Yes, yeah. either one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Count me in. Thanks, Shani. All right, thank you.